Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We have a big show for you today. We have Gracie on the line from Texas. We have a couple of guests coming in. Uh, on the downside, we've got Chris KP. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for uh, putting <laughs> yeah. up with me. <laughs> yeah. uh, you better. You were sick last week. You biked it. Uh, yeah, I was almost blessedly inaudible last week, actually. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have been. It would have been terrible. Yeah. I think I texted you with about three minutes to 11 yeah, saying yeah. where are you yeah. and you said i don't know yeah it was, it was pretty vague at that point i'm gonna say yeah. it might have been great radio actually oh, on reflection yeah, yeah it could have been good morning dr scarlett good morning dr shane how are you doing I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, we've got our new segment up first. I think oh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed. She's uh, over in the background there doing something. I'm, I'm, she's got it's, – it's very weird, folks. In, I just want you to imagine this, but for some reason, the chair that Chris KP has given Liv – I didn't give it to her. – is uh, the sort of chair you'd find in a primary school classroom. Yeah, it's very, it very low to the ground. It's grade one school height. Yeah. 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 yeah, she's about a foot shorter than she normally would be today. It's a bit, it's a, it's a bit disconcerting. Inserting, um, in the studio. But anyway, um, let's get into some news straight away. Chris, do you want to start us off? Uh, certainly. Uh, so I, I stumbled upon two articles this week that inspired me. Um, the first of them, and the reason I say inspired is because the first one, okay, uh, spoiler alert, I thought was a bit interesting. Um, and basically it was about cat smells. Uh, and, you know, the cats, you know, mark their their territory mm. in scent. And when we know that, that that changes over time as well. But no one, well, not nobody, there, there's been some research done recently to look into, well, what are these smells? And yeah. it turns out there's a whole range of even types of organic compounds, all the familiars are in there, all the ketones and uh, and and, um, uh, and aldehydes and others, but et cetera. But they also found that every cat has a completely unique microbiome which produces a completely unique cocktail of smells so that's very much theirs and it can change over time but also um, it can change over over potentially even over the size of the cat so they found that obese cats might have a different kind of range of possible smells to non-obese cats they just didn't have enough cats to be sure of that that's (laughs) true by the way the data set was small anyway so i went read that went it's interesting cats have different smells and that's nice but it was a bit interesting but okay. in a very in a very short period of time, randomly poking around on the interwebs, I stumbled upon another story about smell and about animals making smells, which I thought was also a bit interesting. And together, they became quite interesting. <laughs> and that was the story. Your thought process. I mean, it's, I find that a bit interesting. <laughs> it, it is a bit interesting, yes. It's quite interesting. So basically, you'll be familiar with what I think a lot of people call shingleback lizards. Okay. Um, I grew up calling them stumpy tails. Yeah, yeah. Oh, me, yes. me too. Yeah, stumpy yep. tails. Thank you. Because yeah. I read this article talking about shinglebacks, <clears> and I knew what the species was. I'm looking at photos going, yeah, is it just me? Is it, was that a, my family thing? Mm. But no, no, apparently it's, I think it's a Victorian thing, maybe. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. They are one of the most smuggled 
animals on Earth. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Because they're kind of weird looking and all that jazz. Yeah, people hmm. steal them and smuggle them all over the world. What, so, what for, can I ask? Is it pets yeah. or is it... Okay. Yeah. Basically, illegal pet trade. Illegal yeah, pet trade. Yeah, illegal pet trade, yeah. Wow. So they're very popular. Um, and you can imagine that once you get them into a whatever, you know, you can actually do this relatively, quote-unquote, well, if you like. And, and they're hard to detect hmm. because they're endothermic, um, et cetera, yep. et cetera. So... Um, what some researchers in New South Wales have been doing is they've actually started a, a log of their smells. Because if you think about it, if you can detect their smells, it's a lot harder to hide them now. Yeah, right. So basically, they're, they're going, yeah, okay, if we can just... We haven't got this yet, but if we've got the machine that picks up the smell of the lizard... The, the smell of meter <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Smell of a lizard. It's a little-known sequel to an earlier film. Um, but yes, so, yeah, we're, we're logging shingle <laughs> I, back I'm going to pay that. It's, uh, that was quick. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and I think, I think together, those two smells are very interesting. Animal smells are... There's always more to it. There's more to it than we perhaps give credit. Interesting. Is Opportuno in, in the second one? Uh, I don't know if he's not. Yeah. Um, you know, uh. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Very, very good. Uh, Gracie's on the line from Texas. How you doing, Gracie? Yes, good. How are you all? Uh, I also have an animal story for today. Uh, throw it at us. What have you got? What's the big yes, news? So, yes, I found a study published last week on hummingbirds in the Journal of Experimental Biology, and it's really cool. Um, so basically, these researchers were wondering how hummingbirds can fit through spaces that are more narrow than their wingspan, yeah. oh. because most birds, they can bend their wings at their, I guess you could say, wrist, so they can kind of articulate their wings to kind of make themselves smaller and fit through a smaller space. But hummingbirds, they actually have wings that stick straight out from their bodies. Um, so researchers used high-speed cameras to watch them fly through like a roughly six to eight centimeter hole, which was a lot smaller than their wingspan, to see how they did this. And turns out they actually fly sideways, oh, which wow. is really interesting because huh. other birds, of, of course, they can fly sideways, but that means that they drop out of altitude. Mm. But hummingbirds can actually fly sideways while maintaining their altitude, which is really cool. Um, another way that they did it was they actually pressed their wings completely flat against themselves and they just dove through like a bullet um and they actually have like videos so if you want to look up videos online if you you know just google i'm sure like hummingbirds flying sideways you'll probably find it um and so these findings could be used eventually to help uh you know engineers build robotics and things like that i just think uh the idea of the you know i'm not sure what circumstances would require the hummingbird to do this like i'm sure that you know escaping from a larger <laughs> larger predator but you know i can get through this hole and you definitely can't kind of thing but um but it just it, it's wild to me that they just bullet their way through and hope for the best yeah. yes definitely yeah. yeah and they're still trying to figure out why they choose the sideways method versus mm. the what they call the bullet method um and, and try to figure out you know what makes them choose a certain method over another in a certain circumstance oh i think that's uh i think that's pretty self-evident actually the the sideways method allows them to give the inappropriate side eye to the chasing predator <laughs> oh. as they go through the hole that is too small for the predator and that's a bit of a fu to the predator I that's i think that's self-evident I thought it might have been sort of, I totally agree. I wonder, I wonder if it's more speculative. Like you go through sideways, you know, when you're when you're not sure what's on the other side. You're like, I'm not gonna commit to this, but when you're sure I'm like or you're desperate, that's it, I'm going through, I don't care you, you what's don't on care. the other side. Yeah, I've know. got to get through. I've got no choice. Whatever. This thing's on my yes. tail, I'll go through. So look, I think researchers are doing this there's two very clear options for the answer Chris <laughs> KP and I put forward. I, I think uh, no more funds required. I'm happy to have acknowledgements in the paper. That's fine. I don't even need that. <laughs> even if days. I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm actually happy if they leave my no name off because it's likely I'll be wrong. And then 
you know, sometimes papers of the wrong get cited more than papers of the right. That can happen in certain fields, yes, especially in immunology yes. and so forth. I don't want to be one of those ones that's cited a lot. I'm cool for being that. That's just, that's think it's bad publicity, man. <laughs> <laughs> Chris KP and I have very, very different definitions of why we should be in the news. But, uh, you know, hey, it is what it is. Scarlett, what do you got for us? Well, as a zoologist, I went with a non-animal study hey, this week. Hey, so I, I really had to stop myself, but I did it. Yeah. And instead, I looked into the exciting world of munip- municipal waste management. Oh, yeah. So, mm. It's an attractive area. It is more interesting than you think, or at least than I thought. Maybe some people are really interested by it. Um, so I didn't actually consider the importance of solid waste management for global greenhouse gas emissions. And that right. was a really interesting thing to work out or just to read about how much it actually contributes to global warming. Mm. Uh, And it's the methane release. Mm. So methane actually is a really, you know, Mm. it's a big, big problem. It it contributes to about a third of global warming Mm. with the greenhouse gas, and it traps more heat than CO2. So I was learning a lot Mm. through this paper. But what I really liked about this study was not only did they talk about okay, what's the problem? How is methane from solid waste? And that's, that's things like um, landfills, waste in ecosystems and that sort of thing rather than the other kind of waste we think of. Um, <laughs> so I just want to make I gotta, a, yeah. I I wanna say, note that. When you said solid waste, my mind went to one place. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> exactly. And the whole other people listening just put their forks down. Yeah. <laughs> that's a weird technique. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes, so they what they did was actually provide solid, enactable solutions in this paper as well, which I really liked rather. It was kind of an uplifting story about global warming, which we never get. Mm. So what they were saying but was that by managing methane emissions from global solid waste, we can actually reach the Paris Agreement, mm. which is that keeping to 1.5 yeah. to 2 degrees with current technology that we have as well, so we don't need to create anything mm. new. And we can also, something I learned about was that we have a global methane pledge, which is 30% reduction in methane emissions by 2030, starting at 2020 mm. baseline level. So we can achieve both of these goals just by managing our solid waste in a few different ways. Right. So the authors did this really complex modelling. Don't ask me about it. It was, let's read it out here, artificial neural network coupled with Bayesian hyperparameter optimization. Uh, one so, of my favourites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, Chris so you Kepin, you about it. We would have gone that way, I think. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but basically they found we can hit the targets by doing these solutions, which I'll tell you now. Um, so one is consuming, like digesting organic waste and then using the biomethane um, that it produces. No comment. One mm-hmm. is halving the waste uh, generation that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more for high-income countries. Uh, composting organic waste, retrofitting landfills to um, be more capture systems. The thing is we do need to use all of these things together mm, so one of mm. them won't cut yeah, yeah. it enough. But if we do all of these things, like they will actually get us to these targets we need to be at. So wow. that was, And we don't need to do anything new. We can just do these things that we already have the technology to start uh, with now. Yeah, so wow. that was really interesting. Yeah, and that's great. I was, yeah, I learned a lot about solid waste management. Yeah, yeah. and I, look, I've never heard the word solid used so many times in the one story, and I, I appreciate that <laughs> um, when we're talking about waste. But I think it, it's interesting how many of these things we hear about where the same line, we have ex- the existing technologies enough, um, comes into it. Mm-hmm. So what interests me is, is to what extent different municipalities are close it's like are you already doing this but not enough or are you nowhere near it it's a massive Mm. turnaround that's a great point because they did say there's a few countries already doing this i think like at least japan and switzerland were people who were countries that were already sort of ahead compared to some other places i think there was a third country as well i can't remember but yeah there's some some countries already doing better than the rest of us 
Interesting. Yeah, Very interesting. Yeah, totally. Well, I've, you know, I've been on Twitter this week because my solar panels got uh, installed last week and I'm obsessed <laughs> with how much they've been generating. <laughs> I've been tweeting out the exact amount on a daily basis. I think people are getting sick of it. Uh, but it's, it's wild, you know. I think, um, you know, I've been looking at some of the numbers and one of the things I find really interesting is when you add up how much you're generating as a household. So mm-hmm. so for us at the moment, it's about 40 kilowatt hours a day, which is you know, a number that I was like, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm a physics guy, so you know, I should know what that means. But then I saw a sticker on our freezer, mm-hmm. and it said 250 kilowatt hours a year. That's the estimate for the year. And I thought, okay, so in about five days of having these solar panels, I'm generating about the same amount of mm-hmm. power that um, that my freezer uses in a year. Now, I know it doesn't sort of all go into the freezer, yeah, yeah. But, but still, overall, it seems, wow, this is actually an appreciable amount mm-hmm. of, of energy, and, and it will certainly offset a lot of, of what we're doing. So then I looked into batteries. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how much money they think I have. Yeah. Uh, and, and I noticed that I think the Victorian state government have um, moved from a rebate scheme to a loan scheme. So, And people can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I, when I was looking it up just this morning, actually, it seems as though you can get about like an $8,000 interest-free loan over a period for them as opposed to a rebate, which is a little bit of a cheat on government's mm. behalf because, you know, I'm not applying for hex here, people. I want some cash back. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, but actually, I am. Yeah. Um, actually, I am. And, and, and what I don't know is, is it indexed in the same way that your hex debt is for tertiary education? Because if they're going to index it, then that would be a problem. And what's the time on that, too? Well, you know, I know for the solar panels, I did a similar thing. They have a, they have a rebate and a loan scheme you right. can put together. And I did both of those. I thought, why not? Mm-hmm. And it was about $1,400, not a huge amount, um, on the, the loan scheme. And, and I think it's over four years or three or four years. Okay. So it's not a huge amount of time. But, but you know, it, it's... Makes it twenty, thirty bucks a month or something. It's, it's yeah, yeah, pretty, yeah, sure. pretty good. Um, so there's some good programs around, yeah. but the battery stuff for me is still out of range. I suspect for a lot of people. I mean, the minimum yeah. cost for this looked like about ten, twelve k. I think it's it's the technology like, we, we, we need. We need the you know we need the market to drive mm-hmm. that price down more than anything else. Yeah. So. We'll see. We're getting there, I think. But um, it is one of those things that takes a little bit of uh, a little being used to. Hey, uh, Gracie, have you got solar panels on your house over there in Texas? I mean, you guys got heaps of sun over there. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then we also have, uh, you know, power outages and things like that as well, which are fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, <laughs> Yay. this is why I want to get a battery because one of the things that people forget is that the mains power system is what runs the inverter, yeah. which converts the DC electricity from your solar panels to, to AC. the AC that you use yeah. in the house, which you typically then convert back to DC for your TV and other things. Yeah. Um, but if the power goes off, you lose the inverter, and then the solar panels don't do anything for yeah. you. So that's where the battery system yeah. would come in and be kind of nice. But yeah. In in all of this, with your mm. app and stuff, does it tell you how efficient like the conversions are? Well, you can you work, it, you out. work it out. Yeah, you yeah, can work it out. Okay. So in my case, I paid for it. Mine's a 6.1 kilowatt system. I'm capping out at about 5 kilowatts. Okay. They told me it would be about 82% efficiency. And if you do the numbers on that, that's about right. Okay. So I'm pretty happy with that. I'm, I'm basically getting the efficiency they quoted. I mean, that's in the first week. Maybe in a year it'll be <laughs> much lower. But <laughs> yeah, it's a good start. I mean, you've got you to hope. Absolutely. So, yeah. All right. We're going to take a break for some short station now. And when we come back, uh, Gracie's going to be telling about the talking about the science of awkwardness. So I feel, oh, feel most days. Okay, uh, I'm ready for this. Yeah, I'm not. Let's learn I'm, about ourselves. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Triple R. <laughs> 
Yeah, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. We've got Gracie on the line all the way from Texas. Uh, the science of awkwardness, Gracie. I'm not sure I even want to hear this. Yes, I had a lot of fun putting my notes together for this today. So we're going to talk about a few different studies. Um, but first, I am really fascinated by the origin of words. And so I'm going to tell you where awkward came from as a word. So awk actually comes from uh, like Middle English around the 1500s. It actually means backwards Mm -hmm. um, or backhanded. And then word, of course, the the last half of that awkward word is a direction. And so to be awkward basically means, you know, backwards. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And of course, awkward can be really hard to classify because I'm sure if you think back over your own awkward experiences, it can be really difficult to kind of apply a set of, you know, rules or characteristics to every awkward situation that you've ever had um, or every even awkward feeling that you've had. Mm. Um, but scientists have, have determined, um, mostly psychologists, that expectations actually play a really big part in awkwardness. Um, and so a lot of people define awkwardness as what they call the incongruence or kind of the misalignment between what your perception is of how something is supposed to go and then what is actually happening or what actually happened. Mm. Um, or between even what two people think should happen. Right. So potentially social awkwardness between two people. Um, and so it, it's really fueled by by perception um and social awkwardness really seems to peak in situations where social rules are really unclear um so maybe somebody breaks a social norm or when somebody kind of um can even make things awkward uh by being explicit about social norms Mm -hmm. like saying something like you shouldn't do that um can also be awkward um and there's actually somebody in 2012 that did a research study on uh basically taking narratives of people recounting their awkward situations and trying to find common themes um and so the common themes uh included um awkwardness through a- uh, feelings of anxiety um and then avoidant interactions and so participants actually all felt the need to transform the awkward situation um and they did so either by avoiding it completely or directly addressing it and trying to resolve it so those were kind of the common themes that came up yeah i think i'm in the first group i'm in the avoid group get the hell out of there yeah yeah i am too i'm like the the freeze the freeze reaction yeah, kind of comes me over too. me and i'm like oh i feel like i should address that or say something about how <laughs> awkward that was but i can't and then yeah. i don't think of it you know until seconds later and then it becomes awkward to say anything about it yeah. when you know maybe some time has passed um, but they also noticed a few other themes so situations that tended to violate social norms uh for instance, like interrupting somebody when they're speaking. Um, another one was involving negative judgments of others. So like maybe making a joke about somebody, but you don't realize somebody of that group is also sitting in the room. Right. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we've all done that at some point. Um, uh, no, and then, no. Uh, <laughs> no, not you, not you. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. And then the third one was, uh, Uh, an awkward situation could make you see yourself as a quote unquote social being. Um, So uh, something like an icebreaker game or whenever you look in the mirror and feel self-conscious. So there's kind of like this recognition of social awkwardness there. Is there, can can you have like, is there awkward by proxy? Uh, There's, you know, scenarios where I've been in a sort of conference environment and someone's giving a talk and it's dreadful and I kind of feel awkward for them. Is that a different sort of awkward? Yes, no, definitely. That's the same sort of awkward. Um, and even that could be termed even as like secondhand embarrassment um, is what I most often saw in studies. And some people that are highly empathetic yeah. can exhibit that more than others. See, I, um, I, have to feel, and, I feel that for secondhand embarrassment for Chris all the time because he doesn't feel firsthand embarrassment. No, that's right. So I feel <laughs> it's a civic duty 
I'm largely I'm largely immune, but I do but I do get the joy out of that. Watch there's a lot of lot of film and comedy that I love watching for exactly that. You're just watching the horror yes. unfold, and you're yeah. in the safety of your own whatever. Yeah, watching yeah. that unfold is yes. really quite it's quite insightful and hmm. enjoyable. Hmm. Yes, there's like a whole kind of genre, like uh, Chris mm. was saying about uh, comedy, kind mm-hmm. of surrounding you know awkwardness and secondhand awkwardness, and it's interesting because um, there's kind of like this what people call a Goldilocks effect, where it's not. <laughs> You don't want anything too hot or too cold, but just right. That's kind of true of awkwardness that they found in research studies. So too much of focusing on yourself and monitoring your, monitoring your own actions can make uh, something awkward. Uh, on the other hand, the opposite side of the spectrum, um, people who have absolutely no concept of uh, self-focus at all, um, maybe somebody who like over-talks or maybe tries to get like too close to you whenever uh, oh, they're talking, close um, someone who maybe doesn't understand you know, that, that that's not... Or, okay or you know they're not picking up on your social cues maybe you're trying to back away and they're not picking up on it at all um so either one of those extremes can be associated with awkwardness so we want something kind of in the middle uh if we want to kind of stray away from that and so there's also this common phrase uh, i'm sure you all have heard of the awkward silence Mm. uh and uh there was a study in 2011 that found that uh just four seconds of silence is all it takes for a conversation to become awkward, but they also found that it depends on where the awkward silence is in the conversation. Mm. Yeah, so here we call it dead air. Yeah. Four, four <laughs> seconds is a hell of a long four time. Four seconds long is time. forever. That is, yeah. Like, I, I, we I could do it right now. Yeah, we, we could try. But it would make everyone awkward who's listening because <laughs> they wonder whether there's something wrong. Because someone will tune the in at that... second-hand embarrassment that Well, we somebody will tune about. in at that point, though, and think that everything's gone. There is yeah. no such radio station. And it only takes two seconds to change channels, and we don't want to give people that, that opportunity. Exactly, exactly right. Jump right back in, Gracie, quick. Yes. <laughs> I know, uh, <laughs> even uh, just, just thinking about my own... Uh, experiences with awkward silence too i've noticed it depends on how well i know the person for how much silence i can tolerate which uh what what do you think about that does that align with what you experience yeah i think i I remember once having a difficult conversation in the hr sense with someone and when i i delivered them some information and they took quite a while to process it and before they spoke and it got like i'm talking that was like 20 seconds and for me that really went way beyond well, I would probably have given them a little bit of extra time because I knew it was a difficult situation. But, but at that point, I was sitting there thinking, do, do I say something now? Like, um, are you, st- you okay? Yeah. You- I, I reckon there's the, uh, to some extent, when, when there's that silence, and I've seen people do this deliberately mm. you know, and have sort of said that. They've articulated that we want to have this moment of awkwardness and sit in it, etc. And I think the problem with that is that it puts a lot of pressure on whatever the next thing said is. Because now it has to be meaningful or important or insightful. It can't just be a glib comment or mm. a, or an expression of where you're at. It needs to be something. So you're changing the dynamic yeah. immediately to something quite different. It, Do you remember the interview with Tony Abbott? Oh, and he, poured, he, he just froze, totally he froze. froze. Yeah, yeah. And it went for too long and people didn't know what was going was on. They thought he was having the, a stroke. I thought he was having an issue yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I nearly felt, to, I nearly you, felt you bad for him. The, you're, 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 you're not good at this to... Should we ring someone? Yeah, exactly. Like, and there's a moment where, but but awkwardness, I think, in this sense, that that that, that delay can be a tool. Like I know if oh, if yeah. I get a a scam phone call and there is a delay, because I know my friends won't do that to me. Yeah, I just hang up. Yeah, because totally. if if you are quiet for three seconds while the you know the road news service is connecting you to whoever, <laughs> I don't know what that, I don't know what happens behind that curtain. Sleepy in some and I don't want to know. Um, but that that delay, which is would be an awkward silence in talking to a colleague or friend, yeah. um, is enough for me to say not a real phone call. Bye bye. 
Yes, yes. And even, um, you know, people who are trying to make like skilled negotiation tactics, that's mm. like a really good one that they use is yeah. they'll just, you know, kind of do the awkward stare mm. at you um, and wait for you to be the next person to speak or the first person to speak. Yeah, I'm going to use that now when I, you know, if I'm buying the television or something and, and they're giving me a price, I'm, I'm, they're going to say it and then I'm just going <laughs> to stare at them. How much for a battery? For like <laughs> 10 seconds and see what happens. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It makes it hard to do online uh, shopping. Oh, definitely. Yes. (laughs) And there's also, uh, there's actually a pretty good usefulness for awkwardness. So it's uh, typically used as like a social early warning system Mm. that we have as well. And so people tend to pay extra attention to like the social atmosphere during an awkward moment. And so it can also kind of remind us like, oh, that was that kind of broke the social norms. Maybe I shouldn't do that again. So it's actually a good social tool and a good social feeling to help kind of keep us in line a bit. Um, But it's interesting because there are also um, like physical discomfort associated with awkwardness too, right? Like you could have like a blushing face. um, You kind of feel like a pit in your stomach. Um, There was actually a really interesting study that was done in 2020 that looked at the visual perception of awkward body movements. And so what they did was they looked at... uh, different what they called greeting behaviors so like people going in for a handshake a fist bump or a high five and in the first part of the experiment they watched videos um, and they classified the videos as either awkward or natural and then if they said that they were awkward they provided like more detailed descriptions Um, and participants tended to show a lot of consensus in the ones that they judged as awkward versus not awkward and they used both social and motor related words to describe the awkwardness which was interesting And then in part two of the experiment, um, they actually uh, looked at um, basically different types of body displays. So one used almost kind of like a thermal imaging tool um, to see like the the awkward or natural interaction happening and then they watched it back as like a stick figures so like two little stick figures picture like there's a square as the torso of the person and then their line sticking out and then they watched the video uh like that as well and tried to determine if it was an awkward or a natural mm. greeting um and people also still had consensus even with stick figures watching stick figures interact mm. of what was considered awkward which was really interesting God, because you know you're not reading faces at all yeah, I think it's it's interesting, you know, when you talk about all this work, because for the majority of us, um, these social cues and that are, are relatively easy to pick up on and so forth. But there's there's a, a huge group of, of people who are neurodivergent who, um, in many regards, can't pick up on those social cues or struggle with those. And like, it's hard for, for us, like to do the sort of stuff you're talking about, like to actually be aware of that sometimes. And it must be so isolating for people who are sort of finding that even more difficult to actually be able to connect with that. Yeah, definitely. And the last study that I wanted to talk about ties in with what you just said perfectly. There have been a lot of studies done recently. One uh, that I'm going to talk about was done in 2022, how, you know, the pandemic and our lack of social interaction and our Mm. lack of physical interaction has also impacted our perceptions of awkwardness and mental health and loneliness um, and all of those things. And so, yeah, I think that's a really important topic um, and something that uh, we can kind of all all work towards to build up our awkwardness tolerance, (laughs) quote unquote. It's kind of of like a muscle right um you know you go to the gym to build up your your physical muscles and you have social interactions with other people to build up kind of your muscles um with your social cues as well um and not everybody of course there are some people that struggle with that more than others just like you said um but there's also some sort of for most of us there's some sort of growth that we could do as well um 
and, and some strategies we can use. Indeed, Gracie, great stuff. I, I work on my tolerance to awkwardness by hanging around Chris Kepi, mm. uh, you because know, he... Happy to help. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's awkward. I know. That just sounded, that just sounded wrong. And so something happened to my – I felt a physiological response. Oh, boy. It's, it's, uh, it's challenging. Gracie, thanks so much. Uh, everything well over there in Texas? Yes. Yes, it is. We're, we're starting to get that cooler fall weather over here. I know y'all are doing the opposite. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, chill out, as it were, and I hope you don't get uh, too much uh, weird weather going on. And uh, if you get too cold, you can come here to Melbourne and hang out in the studio with us. Yes, that would be amazing. Thanks, Gracie. Uh, Folks, we're going to take a break for some tunes, and when we come back, we'll have our our first guest for today. Triple R. And welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Professor Piluigi Mancarella from the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you in here. Now, you're working on this fascinating area of how we facilitate the integration, essentially, of renewable energy into our current energy system. And I suppose just if we go to the kernel of that, like there's so much changing at the moment. There's there's big renewable plants off, you know, out in the country in places. And, and then there's a lot of stuff on our homes. I mean, how, how do these things play into the energy system that we, we sort of already have? Yeah, that's almost like a miracle. It's actually working. Yeah. It's, and I, I really, I mean, when I say I'm really serious, I mean, this is, I'm not sure that uh, we understand uh, that this change is actually unprecedented. Mm. The Such a change, probably we've seen it only when the electricity grid uh, was born uh, right. under 30 years ago. We need yeah, to yeah. go back to, yep. to, like, really, like the, 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 the times of Tesla and Edison. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, and in Australia in particular, it's pretty in a unique position because of, as you said, uh, the interaction between very large-scale renewables yep. and very highly distributed renewables such as rooftop right. solar PV. In fact, uh, when I go around the world to present um, lectures, what's happening in Australia, everyone is a little bit like, wow. Yeah, right, right. We're really at the forefront of everything. It is technically very complicated to run a system like this, so, yeah, we should be really somehow be thankful to the system operator, the strange market operator is also the system operator to be able to run that. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, there's, of course, lots of uh, uh, market complexity and economic mm. complexity implications mm. associated with that. Now, there's so many things to unpack here. Uh, so, first of all, one of the things I always found fascinating was that the grid's ability to deal with uh, non-peak and peak times. So, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the grid's built on the idea of peak. So, you know, like everything has to be able to deal with the peak load, which happens, I assume, twice a day or something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so... All of a sudden, when you start changing those peak load parameters by having feed-ins and, and reduced usage by us as individuals um, and businesses and so forth, like how do you do? You just scale back the peak requirements from the grid. Like how does that change get implemented? Yeah, unfortunately, well, we wish it would be like this. It is not actually because uh, many of the peaks just remain there. Because mm. in, in many cases, for example, you think that. Uh, in, in, in winter, you may have like uh, right. peaks during winter, and then there is not much, for example, rooftop PV yeah, production right, right. at the time. So you may have wind or not, uh, but if you do not have wind, for example, you still have uh, the old uh, the old peak. Mm. And on the other hand, something that uh, 
it's pretty fascinating. It's like it, it's made somehow the, the headlines. But I just wanted to mention is that actually we're having more and more issues with the minimum demand, right. and this is because uh, in order to supply a minimum demand, we need to have a number of power plants that provide technically system stability. Mm-hmm. So with this demand, the minimum demand is actually too low. We are not able to have a sufficient number of power plants providing the system stability, and therefore we somehow jeopardize the whole reliability of the system. Yeah. And um, that's pretty new and unique to Australia. And yeah. And and so on that. So if we th- think about that for a moment, um, uh, you can't just turn these power plants off, right? I mean, they have to they have to run. So what what do we do with the the energy that they generate in these minimum times when we don't need it? Like, does it just get drained off somewhere like what what actually happens to the power produced well what what, what happens is that effectively uh, you would have to curtail other generators that might be produced right. at the time and typically these generators are renewable generators oh. so in many many cases actually in the past we have curtailed renewable energy because we needed for example um, gas power plants to run mm-hmm. not because we necessarily wanted the energy yep. from the gas plants but because those gas plants were providing technical stability services reliability services that uh, uh, otherwise would not be able to to supply yeah God, it's fascinating and, and i suppose there's this whole issue of the phase of the electricity and the, the way in which it sort of floats around the system so like if i'm getting some of my electricity from one location and some from another it has to match up in the mm-hmm. home within the grid i can't just you know have mismatched power sources so that, i mean that must be incredibly hard to yeah. to sort of co- i don't even know how that would be coordinated when there are so many sources coming online yeah that is why before i said it's almost like a miracle mm-hmm. it's it's an inc- incredibly complex it used to be complex of course mm. now it's, it's become even more complex effectively you need to provide a supply and demand balance so whatever is being consumed needs to be produced by someone uh, on a second by second basis mm. you cannot let it slip for just one second if you do basically you have a blackout yeah so yeah. this this tells you the complexity you're running a grid like 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 this yeah god it's wild now um one of the reasons why we got you on today is because the university of melbourne is now a co-lead on and let me get this correct the australian arm of the electric power innovation for a carbon free society center yeah. otherwise known as epics I love a good acronym yeah, like that. Nice. Uh, now, what's what's the the goal of the centre there? Because this is obviously an international collaboration. What what will the centre be doing? Yeah, so we're really proud of that. It's uh, it's part of an international call uh, um, for um, global centres for climate change and green energy. If I'm not wrong, there are only um, six or eight uh, around mm. the world uh, between the US, UK, Australia, and, and Canada, and we are leading in, in Australia, one of those, uh, um, is one of the two on clean energy. Uh, effectively, we are working with the best uh, uh, universities in the world, try to really address the key issues that we're seeing in Australia, but also in other places in the world. I think in Australia, we're at the forefront of these issues because we are seeing, again, this huge penetration of mm. renewables and, uh, for example, rooftop PV. Um, but other parts of the world will see it very, very soon. And there are a number of questions to really address. They are complicated. One is one, one in particular is very technical, regards uh, the stability of the grid. Yep. When we have all these renewables, they are technically very different uh, from conventional power mm. plants like based on coal and gas. Yep. 
Then there, are, there is another issue that is about how do we design markets for this new grid in order to be economically efficient? And the third gigantic question is how do we plan for a clean energy system of the future, which is not only the electricity grid, it's everything, the whole yep. energy system. And there are lots of discussion, for example, on hydrogen in mm-hmm. Australia, also to, to bridge to other sectors. There is not only electricity. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was, you mentioned before that, um, that our energy supply system and, and the grid is unique. Does that mean that we're, is it unique in a way that we're going to catch up with other parts of the world or they're going to catch up with us? Or is intrinsically, is it, it's always going to be different? Yeah, a great, great question. I think uh, that uh, uh, others will have to catch up with us. We're really like probably five years ahead to most wow. parts in the world. I mean, in many cases, 10 or 20 years ahead. Uh, but, sure. but still, you know, we, are, we are a few years ahead than probably the UK, Texas and other places that are yeah. like, in similar conditions with, with renewables. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we also have a unique features that is uh, distributed rooftop PV. This is really incredible uh, hmm. in the world. And of course, it also depends on the fact that we have lots of sun. Yeah. And is, our, is, our, um, is our market different? A market is different. Markets are usually very different in different parts yeah. of, of the world. In general, the, I have to say that the Australian market runs pretty efficiently, has run pretty efficiently. You know, now, with, with everything we can say about it, <laughs> but sure. if we compare mm. to other markets yeah. around the world, actually, technically, it is run with, with very good efficiency. And it's also showing that somehow you are able to run a system complicated like ours also with the current uh, market arrangements, mm. which we were not really sure about. Of course, we are looking forward to mm. changes in the market to make yeah. it even more yeah. efficient. And that's why we, we will do research. But it's not so bad, yeah, I'd okay. say. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Mm. Uh, just before we let you uh, go, Piluigi, with regards to the changes we're talking about, we're not just talking about changing the grid from one energy source to another, but we're also, I, I assume, talking about the electri- electrification of a lot of stuff that traditionally hasn't been electrified. So, you know, our transport sector completely, you know, how do you completely electrify that sector? So presumably when we're talking about these grid adjustments, it's not just changing the source, it's also changing the outputs and what uses it. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very right. This is not the, the transformation is really going to be, again, unprecedented. Mm. It's not only the supply side, but also the demand side that will change. Imagine all the new potential peaks that might arise mm, yeah. once all cars will run on, on electricity. On the other hand, there is something that can really help. The fact that all those cars would be some tiny energy stores that mm. could actually help you uh, store renewables that perhaps has been produced locally by your rooftop PV or maybe from, you know, it's been produced by some uh, renewable energy farm, renewable wind farm far away, but still it's a tiny store that could be really useful in balancing the grid, as yeah. we were saying before. Yeah. It's wild stuff. I think I've noticed too, in talking to people about this, there seems to be a shift for people saying, you know, almost like an ownership, like, you know, I want to produce my own energy and I want to be responsible for that and I want to do the right thing and, and make sure that I, I'm contributing in a way. And, and individuals where governments have failed, actually, in many regards, individuals are, are taking up that that sort of responsibility. And I, and I hate the idea that they have to, but I think it's that shift, especially in Australia, and we're seeing this, in, in especially in places like Adelaide, I think, where, you know, some of the, the numbers suggest that the majority of their power at certain times is produced by renewables. I mean, that, that's something that, you know, it's, we're late, but we're getting there. 
Yeah, it's, it, it is. It is fascinating. Uh, it, to be honest, I don't think we're we are late. I think we're mm. doing we're okay. doing good. And uh, that's why, for example, we're doing lots of research on uh, energy communities because yep. you know exactly you know, addressing this yeah, kind yeah. of p- point that you're mentioning. And yeah, it's great. It's great that people are moving. Mm. Well. Thank you so much for coming and chatting to us today. Good luck with the new centre. That's the Electric Power Innovation for a Carbon-Free Society Centre, um, co-hosted or co-led by the University of Melbourne. Peter Luigi, thanks so much for coming into a Triple R. Thanks so much for you. Thank you. Folks, we're going to take a break for some short station announcements, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the eye. It's a great topic. I love the eye. Yep, it's cool stuff. Triple R. Thankfully, we have an excellent guest in the studio. We've got Dr. Flora Hugh, who is a research fellow in the Glaucoma Research Unit at the Centre for Eye Research Australia. Flora, we have been talking about getting you on forever. You and I exchanged messages on Twitter. It's taken us about 15 years, but you're here. I am here, and it did require another superstar of Sturm yes. to get us onto mm-hmm. our calendars so that we could come here today. Yeah, Susie uh, last week shamed us into uh, into doing this, so I thought, yep, we're going to do it. Uh, now, you, you work in a range of areas, but essentially neurodegenerative disease, so such as glaucoma. Um, tell us, uh, I've always had this mindset that glaucoma is where the pressure of the eye goes up and it causes bad stuff. How far off am I? No, you are close, although um, we actually understand a lot more about glaucoma now and realise that it's not all about pressure. Mm. Even though all the treatments that are currently designed to treat glaucoma are all about lowering eye pressure. And Mm. so we used to think that... Just as you say, we used to think that high eye pressure was the reason that the nerve inside the eye got injured over time, and that was the cause for us losing vision. Yep. And so, therefore, if you lower the pressure, it must work, and it must it must just fix everything. Is, is that why when you, you'd see an optometrist and they they come up to you real close and they put like it was like a puff of air or something they injure eye and is that what they were doing measuring the pressure? Yeah. So there's actually a few ways to measure eye pressure, and really the first way that we ever got invented was using a weight um, that they would actually put onto your eye. <laughs> so not, not happy about that. <laughs> not super. Not super pleasant. Yeah, um, yeah. Not, I open or close? Sorry. I I open. So. <laughs> Good question. clarification. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they did use anaesthetics, so oh. there's that. Um, but we no longer really use that technique. But some of the ones that we still use, one of them is the air puff, which yeah. not many people particularly like. Yeah. Um, another one is where we do put drops in the eyes still, which is a contact method. Yeah. Um, and we also use one that's called a rebound tonometer, where it's a little <laughs> tiny probe that actually um, darts and touches, taps, taps your eye gently. I thought you were going to say it's a ping pong ball. And we, <laughs> I'm sorry. Shoot it at your eyes. So when, when you're talking about eyeballs, there's, there's no such gently enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one actually doesn't require an anaesthetic because the Says probe... Says who? <laughs> <laughs> because the probe is so small, it makes such um, a minimal contact to the surface oh. of the eye that it actually... Like, I always say to the, pa- to the patient, you might feel a gentle tickle or tapping <laughs> sensation, um, but that's actually what so it, it feels sounds, like. It sounds yeah. like an eye seismometer. Do, do you know this? It's the It's the optom version of when someone's about to give you a needle and they say, there'll be a small scratch yeah mm. yeah it's like that's not a scratch mate you just you just impaled me with a bit of steel it is yeah. nothing like that <laughs> uh, so 
anyway, okay, that's cool. Getting, getting back on track. So the yes. so the pressure is is not the main game now. Do we still test the pressure? Is that still an early warning sign? Yeah. So definitely, um, high eye pressure can definitely cause glaucoma and cause mm. damage to the nerve cells at the back of the eye. And so, and that's why currently all of our treatments are still lowering eye pressure. But at the same time, you can actually get glaucoma and have normal eye pressures. So, yeah, what we traditionally would call a normal eye pressure, and yet your nerve still um, loses nerve cells, still lose vision. But currently the method is to still lower the pressure even more um, in the hope to try and slow down the condition. Do do we know – sorry, to jump in there. Do we know um, what's raising the pressure? And and when when you say lower the pressure, are we talking about like a a 5% reduction or are we talking about like a 50% reduction? my eyes, like, I don't know if you... Does anyone remember that scene at the end of Total Recall? Yes. Yeah, you know, when uh, yeah. Arnie was on Mars and his eyes were coming... Yeah, yeah. Like, are we talking about that? Like, what, what, what sort of range are we talking about? Look, there is actually a form of glaucoma that does involve pressures that are significantly higher. Mm. So a normal eye pressure for a normal person is usually around 10 to 20 millimetres of mercury. Mm. And so you can get an acute form, which is what we call acute angle closure glaucoma. And that's when the area inside the eye that is responsible for draining fluid out of our eye actually closes up. So then if you can't drain fluid out of enclosed space, then pressure shoots up and it will go up to like 50, 60, 70. And like those are very painful and you definitely know that's happening. But more often than not, um, the pressure will go up to, it will be in the 20s or even the 30s. Um, And we aim to, our target lowering is usually around 20 to 30%. Right, okay, um, That's what we try to aim for. And just because across the research, we know that it does, it can have the potential to slow down vision loss by reducing it by that amount. Mm. Um, But at the same time, about a third of people don't respond to pressure lowering. And that's kind of how we started realizing that aside from eye pressure there must be something else yeah so and that's what you've been you've been working on something else you've been working on that essentially and I, I always say this with care a supplement Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it always sounds dodgy, doesn't it? But you know, it not, does. not in many cases. It's got a bad rep. Yeah. yeah, it does. And look, and we didn't set off trying to look at supplements to start mm. with. Um, what we were interested in was, you know, what is what else is happening aside from eye pressure? And we know that the nerve cells in the eye, the ones that we lose in glaucoma, actually have the job of sending signals from the eye to the brain to actually alert us to actually that we're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. And those are the cells we lose, and they actually use up a lot lot of energy to actually send that communication it's very seamless you know we don't know that it's working it's just it Mm. just happens and it consumes a lot of energy throughout the day and the eye actually consumes just as much energy as the brain by weight which is crazy that's that's surprising to hear that because the brain's such a dense sort of material yeah for such a thin piece of tissue at the back of the eye it consumes a lot of energy and so what we do know is that as we get older our cells actually become less efficient at producing Mm. energy and so the concept was so the original idea was like what about in glaucoma because glaucoma is predominantly an aging condition you know is that actually added injury to aging and so that's actually what we set out to look um, to to um, discover and research and that's what we found so we do find that the nerve cells in the eye actually rely on mitochondria for their energy source mitochondria throughout our body but they do produce energy and um, and as they get older they become less efficient in doing so and with glaucoma they're even less efficient so we were trying to look at how do you preserve mitochondrial health then and one of the ways that 
we can do that is via the supplement. Yeah. Um, and the supplement in particular that we're talking about is called nicotinamide, which is a type of vitamin B3. But nicotinamide is actually involved in recycling a really crucial molecule in the human body called NAD. I won't read out what it stands for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I could. Do it, do it. So it's nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. Amazing. So well done. NAD is an essential building block for life. Mm. If we don't have it, we don't exist. Um, But it's a crucial molecule that's actually involved in the process, in the machinery that mitochondria use to produce energy. Mm. And NAD levels drop with age and are reduced in glaucoma. Right. And so the idea was if you use nicotinamide, which is involved in recycling NAD, can we actually boost NAD levels and therefore boost energy levels as well? And that will try and preserve the health of these nerve cells so that they can survive and function for longer. And do we do that locally in the eye or is that something we do throughout the body? Yeah, so specifically for our eye neurons, we do it in the eye, but we do it throughout the body. Right. Um, and so mitochondria are really important for our health in general. Um, but particularly in the eye, um, our nerve cells rely on mitochondria mm. for their energy supply. Yeah, wow. Is this something that you can take preventatively or is it something that needs to be applied once you already need, like are getting glaucoma or have glaucoma? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question and um, a really hard research study to do um, in people um, just because we'd have to track them for decades. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, Definitely in the laboratory in a mouse model of glaucoma, it was shown that it was preventative as well as could be used as a treatment. Um, And so we actually set out to do, we did a smaller clinical trial first in people who already had glaucoma to see if there was going to be anything at all to to see. And this was after a huge study came out um, from a good friend and colleague of mine um, looking at it in in mice to show that it was highly protective in glaucoma. And so we're like, "This this is amazing because the supplement is something that you can already buy on the market. Right. So, so it's already tested, safe, we're, we're good to go. You're just buying it sort of off-target. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so nicotinamide, the supplement, has been around for a long time and it's been treated. Used being, it's been used to treat a lot of other conditions. And most recently, um, there was a big skin cancer trial that came out in Sydney, um, again, to look at um, supporting um, d- Hmm. to actually help DNA repair. Right. Um, wow. And it was found that it was, you can actually, sub, people supplemented over a year and found that actually it reduced the incidence of non-melanoma type skin cancer. So a lot of Aussies are actually on nicotinamide for that reason. Well, um, good to, for them. They won't get glaucoma. Or maybe <laughs> it'll be slower progressing. Yeah. That, this could be a good thing. Yeah. And so right now we're, try, we're actually currently investigating what happens over two years in people who have glaucoma and does it actually slow down the condition mm. and should we be incorporating nicotinamide into actual glaucoma management God, we could end up putting it in the water are we all going to uh, run out right after the show and buy it now? i think chris kp is already <laughs> useful i'm just looking it up yeah 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 flora it's great to talk about this stuff it's it, it's amazing to me when i hear about these sorts of things where you know the paradigm is shifting you know and it's not just pressure not just pressure because it seems to me that's a pretty big red flag when you have a whole lot of people with glaucoma that don't have pressure problems mm. that maybe that's you know it's a component of a precursor maybe too but these other things are maybe the main game and, and it's, it's it's fascinating that you're doing this unfortunately we're out of time i could keep you in for another like hour talking about this it's, I, I could talk for <laughs> our guest today i have to say you know we've uh, we need a two-hour show i'm just saying that triple r if you're listening uh, I hope they are. Sure. uh well, cam, cam wants to 
Cam's got his show coming up. Uh, we're going to hand over to Eden in a minute. But Flora, thank you so much for coming in. Great to finally have you in the studio. I know. It's great to be here. I'm happy to come back, just saying. Uh, well, <laughs> we will get you back. We love having our superstars of STEM. And you were one too at some point, weren't you, Scarlett? Were you a superstar of STEM? That, no. Oh, just in Something to aim for. But yeah, in I think just, just, in general, just a general <laughs> in that way. Just a general superstar. Yeah, just a general superstar. Uh, folks, uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Chris Cappy, good to see you. Always, thank you. Scarlett, great to have you in the studio as well. It's been a great day. Liv has been doing our Twitter feed on her very short chair. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll fix that for you next time. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, we uh, have a big show coming up for you next week. Uh, four guests. Wow. Whoa. Jammed them all in. Uh, it's going to be fun. And uh, we've only got a few shows left for the year. So uh, join us again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend. And we're going to hand you over now to the team from Eat It. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.